0: I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. In today's episode, we have a very special guest, and I'll be speaking with geriatrician Dr. Kara Tannenbaum, who holds a professorship in medicine and pharmacy at the University of Montreal. And Dr. Tannenbaum, And I met, uh, we were just talking about it, on an escalator at the American Geriatric Society meeting many years ago, and she has just done amazing research and other work in several different arenas related to health and aging. And I've asked her today to talk to me about one particular area of her expertise, which is how we can help older people identify and reduce risky or unnecessary medications such as benzodiazepine sedatives. So this is called deprescribing. It's kind of becoming a new trend in healthcare. And over the past several years, Dr. Tannenbaum has completed groundbreaking research related to this topic. She's also helped found the Canadian Deprescribing Network, which we in the United States can probably learn from. And she's currently helping to lead a major national effort to get Canadian seniors to reduce their use of risky medication by 50% by 2020. I've been a fan of Dr. Tannenbaum's work for years, and so it's really a pleasure to have her here today on the podcast to discuss all this exciting work she's doing. Kara, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Leslie. Thanks for having me.
0: Sure. So I thought to get started, I would love for you to start by telling us a bit about how you first became interested in medication issues for older adults and in deprescribing. What was it that particularly brought your attention to this topic?
1: I think I first really became passionate about informing older adults about um, you know, some of the risks of taking certain medications in my first year as a geriatrician. And without dating myself, that probably goes back to over 20 years now. And it happened in the same week with one patient who I saw in the emergency room and another patient who I saw in my clinic. And let me tell you about we'll call her Mrs. Smith, that wasn't her name, but let me just tell you Mrs. Smith's story. So one night I was doing my emergency room shift, it was probably one o'clock in the morning, and you know, everyone's anxious to either get to their room in the hospital or be able to find out if they could go back home, and I came up to Mrs. Smith's bed, and unfortunately she had that look about her leg where hopefully no one listening to this knows what that looks like, where it sort of turned to the outside and it doesn't look quite normal. And of course, she had broken her hip. Oh. and you know she was devastated and i said unfortunately your hips broken and uh, you're going to need surgery and she said oh no does that mean i have to cancel my trip to florida because here in canada where i work in montreal in particular everyone wants to go down to florida for the winter and i'm not showing favoritism to any particular u.s state of course but of course not. that's the way it is california is too far California is too far. We're on the East Coast. And and she said, so I can't go. I can't take my trip. And I said, no. And she said, oh, my God. God, I'm so stupid. I'm so upset. She was—I uh, don't remember exact age. I think she was 80 years old. And I said, "Why are you calling yourself stupid? What happened?" And she said, "Well, you know, I got up to go to the bathroom. It was the middle of the night, and I guess I was a little groggy, and and I tripped. You know, when I stepped into the bathroom over the um, you know, that little sill, and that's when I fell and I broke my hip. And I'm so stupid. I should have been paying attention. And I said, "Well, no, I I don't think you're stupid. I mean, if if you have to go to the bathroom," middle night you have to go and she said oh but i go so often and we'll come back to that and Mm. um she said you know i was hoping those sleeping pills would let me sleep through the night and i wish i could have done something to prevent this and i said well what do you mean you're taking a sleeping pill and she said yeah i'm taking a sleeping pill and i said well, you know that when you take the sleeping pill, your brain is under the influence of the sleeping pill. So, um, you know, it's not paying attention to your balance. Your concentration is off. Your reflexes are off. And it could be that that's why you didn't catch yourself when you lost your balance and why you fell and you broke your hip. And she was just flabbergasted. And she said to me, but no one ever told me that taking a sleeping pill you know, increase the probability that I would fall and break my hip. Right. Why didn't anyone tell me that? I never would have taken the sleeping pill. So that was Mrs. Smith's story and I guess at that moment my heart went out to her and I said, well shouldn't we be telling people that they can make informed choices about the medication that they take and and the unintended consequences of those medications. Now of course it didn't mean that the sleeping pill caused her to fall but it could be that if she hadn't been taking the sleeping pill, she would have been paying more attention, or she would have been able to catch her balance better because the sleeping pill puts all the nerves in your brain to sleep, and right, it even right. goes into the next day. In fact, a lot of people don't know that women, in particular, because they usually have smaller bodies and their kidneys function um, less well as men because they're smaller—not less well, just they're smaller—that. Um, Sleeping pills are 45% higher in a woman's blood, their drug level, than in a man's drug the morning after they take.
0: Oh, wow.
1: So that's Mrs. Smith's story. So obviously, I was like, wow, how can I get the word out and let people know about, um, you know, the risk so that they can make informed choices? Yeah.
0: And if I can comment just briefly on that, you know, part of what strikes me about that is that if you ask older adults, so many of them are eager to not fall and want to know what they can do to reduce their fall risk because they know other people who've fallen and they know it can be sort of life-changing if you break your hip or otherwise get hurt. And so I feel like people have this, this interest in knowing what they can do. And then so often there are these things that somehow they haven't been told, like the fact that certain ones of their medications we know are associated with a higher risk of falls. So that, you know, I agree, my heart goes out to her too. But what was your other story?
1: My other story, I, I saw another woman, even though I see lots of men, and I could tell you stories about men. Um, I could tell you stories about men, too, if you want. Maybe I should change uh, my story. But one of, one of them that really bothered me was a wonderful, wonderful, um, you know, black Haitian woman who came to see me because uh, she was actually wetting her bed at night. and And mm-hmm. every Christmas, she went back to visit her family in Haiti. And this year, the family told her, you know, we don't think you should come because, uh, you know, we don't really have the capacity to change the sheets. And and she was just devastated. And she said, can you give me another pill so that I don't wet my bed at night? And um, obviously this is stigmatized and we don't always talk about urine loss. And But I do encourage people to talk about it because one in two women over the age of 65 does have involuntary urine loss. And in 75% of cases, we could improve and cure that, you know, pretty easily, even without medication. So I do encourage my patients to talk to me about their bladder problems a lot. And we I took a look at her medication. She, I was a specialist, so I hadn't been the one prescribing it. And I said, well, no wonder you're peeing your bed at night. Do you know that four of the medications that you're taking, and those were her pain medications, her sleeping pills, she was taking something for anxiety, she was taking an antidepressant. I said, all of these have very, very strong sedative properties and essentially what's happening is that when your bladder says to the brain, I'm full, I want to go to the bathroom, your brain says, don't, you know, sneeze, like snoring. Mm. Don't bother Mm. me right now. I'm sleeping. So the bladder overflows and and it comes out. And she said, wow, nobody ever told me that. So you mean, if I could get myself off of some of these pills and I'll be able to go home and see my family in Haiti for Christmas. And I said, yeah, let's work on it. I don't know if we could get all of them off because you might need some of them for some of your other conditions. For instance, she did have quite a severe depression. She had a bipolar depression, which is where you have manic depressive episodes. And you know you do have to make choices But we got her off three out of the four medications and she was able to control her bladder at night. A lot lot of things have to do with your bladder at night, I guess. And she was Uh able to go visit her family. So I said, this is ridiculous. How is it that people don't know? I want to make it one of my life's missions to empower people with information so that they can make choices about the best therapy for them, whether it's drug therapy, non-drug therapy, lifestyle changes. Let's really equip people with information so that they could be active participants in the decision around their health care and medication use so to prescribe or deprescribe um, I actually lean more towards the de-prescribing these days Shakespeare would be happy with me right right <laughs> that well, is the question since,
0: since we're surrounded by all these other doctors who are prescribing I feel like it you know turns into our role in geriatrics so part of the things that strike me about those stories are, are a few you know one is as you said it, we're, we're there trying to de-prescribe because people are on so many medications and many of them may not be strictly necessary, which sort of gets out this question of why are they still being prescribed? And that's sometimes been called uh, inappropriate prescribing or sometimes I think of it as um, maybe suboptimal because there might be a, a, a way that's a little better, um, better meaning better for that individual person too, right? Because uh, healthcare has to be tailored to the person, but in your experience, how common is it for older adults to be on, let's say, it's sort of a suboptimal medication uh, list?
1: Leslie, I think you'd be scared if I told you how common it was. So um, we actually did a little study in Canada about these inappropriate or what we call potentially risky medications and what we did is we took the list that the American Geriatrics Society made the beers list and they made a list of medications that they believed based on research um, to be no longer of benefit to older adults or that may be unnecessary or causing harm. And we took that list and we went into the Canadian drug databases. And basically what we found is that um, a third of men over the age of 65 years old was taking at least one risky prescription. And 42% of women over the age of 65 years old in Canada was taking at least one of these risky prescriptions. What was scarier, and we didn't realize this, is that over age 85, those figures are even higher. And I imagine Mm -hmm. that's because as you get older, you accumulate more conditions, and so you take medications. And if I told you that 47% or almost one in two women over the age of 85 in Canada was taking one medication that was on the list of drugs to avoid in older people, um, I I think I'd be embarrassed about Canada and I'd say, wow, you guys must be doing better in the United States. But unfortunately, you're not doing that much better. In a U.S. study, we also found that about a third of people over the age of 65 were taking risky prescriptions. So I'd say that if someone listening to this went to their doctor or pharmacist or nurse tomorrow and said, hey, is it possible for me to get off one of my medications? There'd be a one in three chance that the doctor or pharmacist or nurse would just go, hey, yeah, let's get you off of this one. So, I mean, that's good news and bad news, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're right. And I'm glad you mentioned the beers list because that's such a wonderful resource. And people sometimes don't realize that there's actually quite a lot of information online in the public domain about it. The American Geriatric Society uh, website for consumers, healthandaging.org has a section with information on the beers list so people can actually go and you know learn which of these medications are there and i'll be sure to share a link to that in the show notes and another thing i also emphasize to people is that just because you're on a medication on the beers list you know that's not necessarily a bad thing or it's not necessarily wrong but ideally you would realize that there were some risks to it and that you and your doctor would have talked about it and considered the risks and considered whether they were alternatives Because often after that conversation, we still decide that despite the risks, it makes sense for a person to continue that medication. But just coming back to the stories you were saying, so often people have not even been told of the risks, right? When they find out, they just say, well, I didn't know nobody ever told me, one, that that medication came with those risks, or two, that there might be alternatives, just the way that you found alternative ways to help your Haitian patient with her incontinence.
1: So, I agree with you completely, Leslie. I would add one more thing is that people's situations change. I mean, we get older every year, so our body right. changes, and what was good for us once may not be the best thing for us now. So something that was prescribed, um, I guess we're talking a lot about sleeping pills today. If you had a spouse, and I hope this never happened, uh, you know, to the people who are listening, but um, who died suddenly in a car accident or because of cancer, and, and it was a shock, and you had a grief reaction, and for some reason you were given a sleeping pill so that you could sleep the night before the funeral. I mean, I know this is a really tough thing to talk about, but This happens, you know, and people do get stressed. And if you got one or two pills that may or may not have been appropriate, let's say in some cases it's what was needed, but you should not be continuing on those pills three months, six months, a year later anymore. And and that's what I mean about things changing. And that's why I believe that every time you go see your doctor, pharmacist, or nurse, you should be asking, do I still need this medication? You were talking about websites and obviously in Canada, we're very respectful and and we use a lot of the resources in the U.S. But what we've done is we've developed a website called www.deprescribingnetwork.ca, where the first thing you see when you go to www.deprescribingnetwork.ca is, do I still need this medicine? And um, you know, we give a list of medic- medications, and we have a lot of user-friendly materials. And I think people should be asking these questions.
0: Yeah, well, that sounds like a great resource. I'm definitely going to post a link in the show notes. I actually already took a look at it, and especially based on your track record of, and we're going to talk about some of the other research that you've uh, you've done on developing materials specifically for older adults. And that's one of the things that I've always, especially admired about your work is that so often. When in medicine, we identify a kind of problem with the quality of healthcare, because that's part of what this inappropriate prescribing is, is that the healthcare is not as good as maybe it could be for these older adults because they're being prescribed medications that maybe they don't um, need. And so often I feel like the response is to focus on the doctors or prescribers, right? We're gonna, we're gonna tell the doctors to do something differently or we're gonna try to give them reminders. And I love how you considered this other angle, which is, well, we could also inform patients directly and see if that could help. So speaking of that, I would love for you to tell us about this particular research study you published a few years ago, which is the EMPOWER trial. And I've actually written about this study on better health while aging in the past in an article called uh, How to Stop Ativan, because that's part of what your study did. You found a way to help older adults discontinue benzodiazepine drugs such as Ativan. And a key part of how you did this was to create an information guide for consumers or patients, depending on how we want to call them. So tell us a little bit about that. Like what gave you the idea of of uh, trying that and why did you choose benzodiazepine drugs in particular?
1: So I think I was really inspired by Mrs. Smith's and and my Haitian patient stories. And I felt that they should be empowered, literally empowered to be making decisions about their health. And as I then went on to see other patients, um, you know, I remember one man in particular, he was 78 years old. He was a little depressed. He had been admitted for heart failure and he was coming in because he felt that he didn't have the energy that he had before and he felt fatigued and he felt that he was getting old and he just wasn't performing. And I said, hmm, you're taking a lot of pills and you know, I, I you must not be a good sleeper. I see you're taking a sleeping pill. And he said, am I? I said, yeah. And he said, oh. which one is that? They changed all my medications when I was in hospital. And they told me if I wanted to survive from my heart, I had to take them all exactly as they were prescribed. But, you know, I, I guess he was a little depressed. He, he didn't even check. And he said, well, I don't think I need a sleeping pill. But he had have been having trouble sleeping in hospital because it was so noisy. So it got prescribed. And so empowering people with the information, you know, I do it one-on-one on clinic. But I felt that there were so many other people who could benefit. So- Her vision was to create really a brochure that you could send people in the mail that I guess simulated the conversations that we, I was having in clinic with my patients. Mm, and mm-hmm. in fact, if you go to the empower brochures and quite frankly, if you just type in empower brochure in Google, you'll probably find one of them because they've become so popular. They've been translated into 10 different languages. They're used in Europe. They're, they're used around the world right now. Um, the empower brochure basically starts off with a series of questions. It says true or False. Do you think that sleeping pills are the best way to manage your sleep? And a lot of people say, true. And then we show them the answer and we say, actually, it's it's false. There's risks associated with it. And research has shown that the quality of your sleep isn't as good on sleeping pills because it's artificial and it kind of messes up the natural sleep architecture of your brain. And there are risks involved. And, you know, do you think that sleeping pills are safe for you if you take them for a long period of time? True or false? And people say, well, true, I've been taking this for a long time. And, you know, most people take sleeping pills for 10 and in our Empower We actually had someone taking a sleeping pill for 40 years. And I said, well, that may be true. But remember, Mrs. Smith, as your body changes and as you get older and as your memory and balance and concentration aren't good, as good as they used to be, then, you know, yes, you can actually have side effects and unintended consequences. And so a little bit of that back and forth conversation thing where people go, ah, I didn't know that. So you get the aha moment. Mm -hmm. And then you say, well, what am I supposed to do then? And, um, you know, we have links to there is cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a long word to just say that you need to get your sleep habits in order. You know, none of this going to bed at all times of the night. It is just not realistic. Unfortunately, I wish it were to sleep 12 hours per night. It's just not. So maybe you're going to sleep too early. Maybe you're reading in bed or watching TV in bed or listening to music in bed. That's not good because then your body doesn't associate the bed with sleeping. It associates it with a activity. Maybe you use your bed to, um, you know, go through your to-do list and you stress and you think about everything. You shouldn't be doing that in bed. You should be writing that before you go into bed so there's so many other things that you could do are you getting enough sunlight during your day is your circadian rhythm that part of the brain that knows day from night is that really on track or have you been chemically coping and artificially through different chemicals in the sleeping pills kind of conditioning your body to sleep let me tell you about some natural ways to you know have a natural sleep and and we tell patients stories about how they did it and we we show how to taper off because you cannot just stop a sleeping pill like this you won't sleep your body's become Mm -hmm. addicted Um, so you have to taper it over a few weeks and to make a long story short we put together this brochure we tested it out by asking people's opinions about it and then we had pharmacists in the Montreal area send it in the mail to their patients and lo and behold, after six months, one in four people who had received the brochure, even if they'd been on a sleeping pill for 40 years, weaned themselves off the sleeping pill. And we said, wow, that is so fabulous. Now we know how powerful people can be if they're just empowered.
0: Yeah. And I think one of the, um, the things that I really liked about the brochure was not only was there this, all this information for the reader about you know the risks of the sleeping uh, medication and alternative effective ways to improve the sleep, but that there was also this, this tapering schedule, which, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was intended to help the person work with their doctor on that taper because tapering medication, especially benzodiazepines, is something to do with the doctor. But I love that because I feel like often... Doctors may not be sure exactly how to taper the medication, or it's this whole process to figure out a sort of formula for reducing it. And so by s- spelling it out in the pamphlet, you created this really useful scaffold that made it really easy for both the, the older adult and the doctor to do the right thing.
1: Well, it was actually people, older adults, who asked us if we could put a picture Um, to help guide them as they worked with their doctor and pharmacist on, do I take a full pill tonight? Do I take a half a pill tomorrow night? Should I be cutting my pill in quarters? Um, So yes, absolutely. The brochure is something that you would read and you would print if you can or download it onto your iPad and then bring it with you to your next doctor or pharmacist appointment and say, here's what I read. You see this picture about tapering. Does that apply to me? one thing that we learned is that when people try to get off of pills sometimes they do it too quickly Mm -hmm. sometimes they do that okay i'm going to do this sort of like quitting smoking right tomorrow i'm not taking this pill anymore that is not the way to do this first of all you need to discuss it and you know engage with your healthcare provider on the best plan the other thing is is that many pills uh sleeping pills in particular your, you, your body's dependent on them and you can't just get off them in four weeks. Sometimes it takes three to four months to very, very slowly, you know, skip a pill once a week, then, then take half a pill every, you know, every second day. There's a schedule for doing this so that the blood levels of the drug go down so, so slowly over months that you barely even feel that your body's getting off of it. And that's what we recommended and that's what worked in the Empower study.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think... You know i don't know that the the doctors necessarily would have thought of that otherwise because well i mean now it's been uh i guess it's been uh, almost uh, i guess it's been 14 years since i graduated from medical school but i don't remember them really teaching us very much about deprescribing in medical school or in residency there was so much emphasis on here's what you prescribe and when or what you can prescribe and much less on how to help people stop so I think you know in a in a roundabout way you're also sort of providing education and information to their doctors because because otherwise you're there in clinic and you may think oh maybe they can taper off it in a month and it's probably really helpful to have something show you and recommend that you know try it over four months
1: absolutely i mean the world's changed right right we're no longer in the 20th century we're in the 21st century The 20th century was a time where the miracle of science almost doubled people's life expectancy. You know, people aren't dying of cancer as as quickly as they used to. We have screening. If you have one heart attack, it's not not the end. So it really is the miracle of science, the miracle of science that we have so many pills. But the problem with that is that the pendulum has swung too far. Mm. And everyone thinks that there's got to be a pill to fix this in me. And I think many of the doctors that were trained during the 20th century, um, and I was too, and like you, Leslie, I believe, um, we were taught, you want to help your patients. Here's a good pill for them. But now we're in the 21st century, and there may be too many pills out there, and they may be interacting with each other, and they may not have been tested when they were put on the market in somebody who's 60, 75, or 80 years old. Right. So I would say that the 21st century, or at least the beginning, is a time to be focusing on deprescribing. And I think that Everyone who takes a medication has a part to play in the de-prescribing movement. I'm so thrilled to see physicians getting on board. Pharmacists are really jumping on board because they truly understand. And nurse practitioners, um, people whose parents are on medication. I mean, I think de is fun. Deprescribing is like sexy. It's very hot right now. It's, you know, but... I think it's just a change with the times, right? Right.
0: right. Well, I feel like ever since I've been in geriatrics, especially since, you know, in geriatrics, so many patients are taking a lot of pills. I feel like I've repeatedly heard from my patients, you know, I'm on so many pills. Do I have to be on so many pills? So even though on one hand, I do feel like often people have a problem and They'd like a pill to fix it because they're hoping for something quick. And in the past, they feel that pills have helped. I think also that for a long time, older adults have, have been interested in being on fewer pills. And I see that right now people are often interested in kind of more you know, lifestyle approaches to managing their health problems and kind of more comprehensive things that, that don't bring as many extra things into your body, in part because I think everyone's realizing that there's a downside to putting chemicals in your body, especially when it's a lot of them as you said, that can be interacting and can have more effects on people who are older because people's bodies become more vulnerable to uh, to side effects. So now that we're on a wave of deprescribing, or hopefully a new normal of deprescribing, which is going to last the rest of the century and then some, which medications do you think it's most important for older adults to address when it comes to deprescribing? What are you and the G prescribing network focused on? Or are you particularly focused on certain ones or what's your thought on that?
1: Well, I wouldn't wanna be accused of showing favoritism Towards de-prescribing certain pills. Um, I have four kids, and we stay away from favoritism in our family. <laughs> Although they're grown up now, and they don't say that anymore. I don't know. But, I, um... I have medications
0: that I love to hate. So, <laughs> but, but you sound you sound more fair than <laughs> so I am. So, which
1: medications do I love to hate? Well, I I love to hate the sleeping pills. Right. I really really do. Just because I've seen so many people fall and break their hip. Um, I've seen too many people come to me and say, my memory isn't what it used to be. Mm. I don't know if you, if you know this, but in Europe, you know, there was one movement by a public health agency where they said that seniors weren't allowed to renew their driver's license if they're taking a sleeping pill, because there's evidence that if you take a sleeping pill, then you have a 50% higher risk of being or causing a car accident. So, you know, you have grandchildren in your backseat and you took a sleeping pill, then, I'm not sure you should be driving. And that really scares me from a public health perspective. So sleeping pills are my favorite because people feel so alert and so much better and so much less fatigued and their memory comes back and they're able to keep their balance better here in Montreal. We have very icy streets. So balance in the winter is a pretty big thing if you don't want to break your hip. So sleeping pills are my favorite. I don't like the, some of the allergy pills that people take and they don't even realize that the, what we call antihistamines. I mean, most people have heard of the word antihistamine. You could find it in some other medications that you take over the counter, things like, I'm not picking on anyone, but the NyQuil. A lot of the non-prescription medications that you buy over the counter have antihistamines in them and the cold remedies. and, And these also are just as strong and Putting your brain to sleep is some of the um, sleeping yeah, pills. Yeah,
0: there are actually often people. You know, people often will use in the United States. It's Benadryl, that's available in every yeah. drugstore. They will use it just as a sleeper. And um, I've actually, I think I've talked about it on the podcast, but I've certainly written about it on Better Health While Aging. You know, uh, those are anticholinergic drugs. These uh, medicines that sort of make you a little bit drowsy and give you dry mouth. And what I often tell people is that they sort of act the opposite way of the medications that we give people who have Alzheimer's. And uh, so do you want to be taking something that's making you drowsy and maybe diminishing your your brain function? And also anticholinergics have been associated with uh, developing dementia, right?
1: There are a number of studies now that show that people who took um, medications that had what you call this anticholinergic property were more likely to later be diagnosed in life with dementia than people who were not taking them. So, you know, people are getting very worried about this. There are some studies showing that if you took a sleeping pill or if you took one of these anticholinergic medications, that you know you had a 50% higher risk of being diagnosed later in life with dementia. Uh, so as I tell my patients, if you were my mom, I would not want you to be on this medication. Right.
0: right. Yeah. So, and, and many of them are used as over the counter sleepers. Well, I have a, I have an article on better health while aging sort of seven commonly used types of those medications, which I'll post a link to because people often coming back to Mrs. Smith, you know, what? I didn't know that that was associated with, you know, memory problems and falls and on the list of medications that geriatricians don't recommend. So any other types of medication that you think are especially important for older adults to identify and learn about and maybe try to deprescribe if possible
1: I guess there's really four more and I'll say them quickly
0: yeah. One
1: is a shout out to people who have diabetes Um, We now know that certain medications that we take for diabetes, like um, here we call it gliburide, one of the medications, are uh, more likely to cause you to have low blood sugar. Mm -hmm. And they just may be too potent for older people. And even if your whole life you've worried about high blood sugar, as we get older, we start worrying about low blood sugar. You you know, your body mass has changed, you may not be as muscly as you used to, you may have lost weight, You, you may have more fat tissue, all this changes the way you process medications. So if you're diabetic, I would definitely go to your doc and discuss if you're on the best diabetes medication for you, or have you been tired, fatigued, dizzy, um, spacing out, because that may be a sign that you're having low blood sugar, and we don't want that to happen to you. So I always take a really hard look at the diabetes medication. As you know, Leslie, as you get older, sometimes you don't need as strict control as you had when you were younger, right. simply because your body's changed. So that's my that's my shout out to people who have diabetes or who know someone with diabetes. Um, the other class of medication that worries me a lot are the antipsychotics. Mm. And they're used, unfortunately, a lot in people who start to have Alzheimer's disease. And they're used as chemical restraints when people with Alzheimer's get agitated or if they wander or if, if they get very annoying. And we call those disruptive behaviors. I hate that term, right. but... That's what we call it. And uh, I really don't like the use of antipsychotics in that situation. I'm a huge proponent of other ways to keep people calm, either to keep them busy with exercise, You know, ask your spouse to help you fold the laundry, maybe um, dry the dishes, make sure people get enough exercise during the day so that they don't have all this pent up energy. If they're confused because they forget who they are, then we need some reorienting with pictures of the family. So I am totally against the class of antipsychotics. Um, in people who uh, unfortunately suffer from different types of dementias like Alzheimer's mm-hmm. disease. Yeah. Another one on our list is um, the, what we call the uh, reflux medication. So a lot of people have heartburn or reflux, and they start off on what we call proton pump inhibitors, the Nexiums, the Pantolox. And that's fine for a few weeks. But once you've got it under control, then you should not be continuing to take those medications because they've been associated with a higher risk of getting pneumonia, especially if you're hospitalized. They could affect your kidney. And when they were tested and developed, it was never planned for them to be taken more than eight weeks if you don't have another Reason for taking them, and finally, uh, here in Canada, we have something called an opioid crisis. I think you suffer from the same thing in the United yes. States. And while we want to help people manage their pain, um, you know, we see we've been seeing a lot of accidental overdoses from the narcotic or opioid medications. People don't realize that this is what's in things like Percocet um, or oxycodone. And uh, especially if you're taking a sleeping pill, that increases your risk of accidental overdose. So we've been making huge efforts to look at um, some of those non-drug therapies to help people cope with chronic pain that have been shown to be really, really effective. So you could say I get very excited about this. I'm a rogue deprescriber, Leslie. Nothing gives me greater pleasure than finding medications I could get people off of because you're right. Most people say, I don't really want to be taking that extra medication. So let's work together to make it
0: No, I think a lot of people are just um, mostly delighted if they find out that they can be on fewer medications. Now, for the medications you mentioned there the antipsychotics, the proton pump inhibitors, the antihistamines, and other anticholinergics do you have empower brochures for those on the Deprescribing Network website, or where can people learn more about how to, um, the risks of those, and how they might get help deprescribing those?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, if you go to www.deprescribingnetwork.ca, we have uh, different boxes and one says information pamphlets. And if you click on that, then you could pick the class of drug that you want. So there's one for sleeping pills, there's one for some of the heartburn medications, there's one for the antihistamines, there's one for the antipsychotics, there's one for diabetes medications. Um, And there's more coming. I mean, I don't know what's there right now, but uh, we're always getting feedback from people about how to make these brochures better and little tips and tricks that they wanna share. So sometimes you you might not see one exactly, it's just because we're updating it. And uh, we have a new quiz out, actually. It's a quiz about antipsychotics. So you could test your knowledge and kind of a survey online. And oh, yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, I would definitely invite people to check out what's going on in Canada at www.deprescribingnetwork.ca. Um, and we have more stuff coming up. We, we have a site called, do I really need this medicine, which we're gonna be launching in the fall where you could actually type in the medication that you're taking and you'll get kind of a happy face or a sad face and a printout that you could bring to your doctor or pharmacist to discuss, you know, for
0: you exactly, is this a good choice? Oh, for well, you? that's exciting. Well, I will definitely post some of uh, some of those links and, we'll, uh, and then, you know, I'll be looking forward to the, the new site coming out. Now, coming back to deprescribing, What have you learned from people you've worked with in terms of how easy it is for them to work with their doctors on it? Because I feel like despite it becoming a more, uh, the medical community having more interest and awareness of it, that it still seems like it's not quite as easy or prevalent as we wish it would be. So do you think doctors are getting better at it? And how can we sort of make it uh, keep the momentum going?
1: That's a great question. And, you know, everyone has a different relationship with their doctor or pharmacist. For sure, I hear lots of people say, my my doc was so thrilled that I mentioned this. They'd been meaning to talk to me about it for a while. It's just that I've had so many health problems lately that we focused on other things. Uh, Other people say that my doctor or pharmacist was really impressed, I taught them something. They actually hadn't seen that study that I quoted to them. But every so often, yes, we do get people who come in and say, you know, my cardiologist is really nervous about, I don't know, lowering the dose of my water pill, because I had water on the lungs, and they prefer not to do it right now, or people who have... um, I would say uh, challenging, or or are journeying through life with a mental health condition, and have been uh, have a close relationship with a psychiatrist. There's always a little bit of hesitation about stopping some of those medications that they've used to treat, um, you know, psychotic episodes or, or major depression or or schizophrenia. So those we need to negotiate a, a little bit differently. But that's normal, right? There's no one fix for everyone. This really needs to be negotiated on an individualized basis. Medication is something that's not a life sentence. You know, when you start a medication, sometimes it's not the right one for you. And, And sometimes when you decide it's time to stop a medication, then that may or may not be right for you either. So for me, it's an ongoing conversation. And as long as it's part of the conversation at every visit, do I still need this medicine? What benefit am I getting from it? Is there potential for harm from taking it? Is there a safer drug or non-drug alternative? And can I try getting off? And how will we follow up? As long as that happens in every single conversation with your healthcare provider, then I'm happy you're
0: having Mm -hmm. the conversation. Yeah. That was a good list of a little list of questions you had there. Those are probably also on the site somewhere that, you know, kind of the, the set of questions that you should be ready to ask about your medications when you go in to see uh, your doctor uh, every time, or, um, or sometimes I tell people if every time doesn't seem manageable, because some people, as you mentioned, have so many health problems going on, that, you know, they can feel like it's hard to get to everything in a visit, but, but I often think, well, you want to at least be sure to bring it up at a minimum once a year, hopefully more often, but you know, that it has to be something that you make sure gets done because people often assume that their doctor will do it. But I think doctors are often quite busy or preoccupied by something else and, and may not do it. Right.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's tons of medication classes. I, I, You know, if you're in your, I don't know, 80s and you have never had a heart attack and your blood pressure is under control and you don't have diabetes and you've been taking a cholesterol medication all these years to prevent all that, well, you know, you may not need your cholesterol medication anymore because you've lost weight and you're in good shape and it's been controlled all these years. Um, I have lots of men who come in and say, "Well, I've been taking this little prostate pill, but quite frankly, I'm not even sure it's it's doing anything for me." And I've changed. You know, I don't drink as much alcohol, so I don't pee as much as at night. Maybe I don't need it anymore. So every single medication, again, do I still need it? What benefit am I getting? Will it cause harm? Is there something safer, drug or non-drug, that I could be taking? And can we make a plan to get
0: mm-hmm. me off of it? Well, I love that list there. So I'm definitely going to dig that up and post a link to it in the show notes. Now, what, is, uh, what are your next projects in terms of research or, or public health efforts on this front?
1: So we have a number of
0: projects coming up.
1: Some of them involve community organizations. So if anyone is listening to this and plays an active role in a community organization, we feel that there should be, um, you know, Uh, conversations happening within these community organizations around medications. So is it a time where we could help put a series of news articles in your newsletter? So we have what we call medication capsules. Um, These are testimonies from people who are taking certain medications and got off of them. Uh, You know, we've recently in Canada been offering community organizations who publish online or send out newsletters to put a paragraph once a month month, just raising awareness around the possibility of risky medications. So that's one big project that we're doing in Canada, where we're developing a list of community organizations and we're offering to contribute a paragraph to every newsletter. And believe it or not, we've also been working with governments because, of course, the big question is, should we be funding medication Mm -hmm. that is that risky? Um, should it be covered in Canada? Don't forget if you're over 65, all your medications are covered. Or should we be covering physiotherapy more or, um, you know, group therapy for anxiety or other ways to manage your pain and pain discussion clinics, um, or support groups. So we're having conversations about what the best use of money is around the optimal use of medication or, non-medication uh we're doing this international scan you know do we have a public responsibility to not renew people's driver's license if they're taking medications that affect their brain and could increase the risk of car accidents is it really fair if you're a driver that other drivers on the road could be under the influence if we have laws about drug levels of alcohol and if the a drug level of let's say a sleeping pill has the same effect as a certain threshold of alcohol level in your blood, then should it be legal for people to drive with levels of medication in their blood that can impair their driving and hurt and kill other people? So these are some of the discussions that we're having in Canada. Of course, we have projects with pharmacists. Um, we have some projects ongoing with uh, physicians, like you said, Leslie, what we call, you know, the, the same way we talk about antibiotics and we shouldn't be prescribing antibiotics for viral infections. So we're engaging in these conversations now with clinicians. Should we really be prescribing sleeping pills for longer than a certain time? Should we really be prescribing um, reflux medication for a certain time? And uh, the opioid crisis, This is something that's generating a lot of interest here. And we've been developing some materials for
0: that. So we're busy. Sure. Well, that sounds great. Now, one thing that comes up that people often ask me here is they say, well, I'm worried about my medications or my mother's medications. And, you know, I mentioned it to my doctor. They weren't so interested. How can I get a geriatric medication review? Because people often want to see a geriatrician, but we don't have so many of them in the United States or geriatric pharmacists. So do you have something in Canada that, you, that is available to people that you're maybe working on developing where people might have more places to go to have that conversation, more resources, or are you counting on your general primary care provider population?
1: Well, in Canada, we we definitely have a very strong referral system. Um, I think there's two things that perhaps differentiate Canada from the United States, although it may be different in certain states. I'm not sure. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) No, but we have two things. Well, okay, there's more than two. So the first thing is that community pharmacists here welcome if patients Mm. make an appointment with them. Um, so, for instance, if you were to download and print some of the materials, either uh, that you let people read, that you develop for people, Leslie, or if you were to download and print something from the Canadian Deprescribing Deprescribing Network uh, website, and you brought that in, you could actually make an appointment with a pharmacist and have a consultation and go over that information with them. And the pharmacist could actually send that information to your family doctor, which would allow you to have the conversation with your family doctor. That's one thing. So we really make pharmacists the leaders in discussing medications in Canada. And every pharmacist working in every single pharmacy, um, if a patient asks, I want to sit down and discuss my medication list, they're under Mm -hmm. obligation to do so. The second thing in Canada is that geriatricians are not primary care providers here in Canada were consultants. So any family doctor that requests a consultation with a geriatrician for their patient to go over a medication list, um, that patient can see a geriatrician. They can't be followed by the geriatrician as the primary care provider, which is what um, leaves time for geriatricians to see many different patients, but then they'll write their recommendations to the family doctor and send them back to the family doctor. So Mm -hmm. that's what we have well, I
0: think it's always so interesting to learn from what other countries and other people are doing, because the health challenges for older adults are, are you know, similar in different places, especially in different developing, excuse me, in different developed countries, but the way that they're approached is and solved can be different. And so I feel like it's, it's a really wonderful opportunity for us in the United States to be able to learn from what you and your colleagues are doing in terms of deprescribing and some of your other uh, efforts on behalf of older adults. Well, Kara, this has been really wonderful to hear about this, and I'm thrilled to be able to share a lot of these links and resources with the audience. Do you have any last sort of tips or suggestions before we finish the episode? I think I would end
1: the episode with say the word deprescribing once a day. (laughs) Whether you're talking to a friend, um, a family member, Uh, your physician, your pharmacist, your nurse, just start throwing around the word deprescribing because if we want culture change, then it's got to be in our vocabulary because what we say is what we end up doing. So ask if you still need that medication. Ask if anyone knows what the word deprescribing is. Put it in your Scrabble games. You know, do what you need to do, your crossword puzzle. Someone should get the New York Times to do a crossword puzzle on deprescribing. And then I think that we're going to be successful. Well said.
0: Well, thank you once again. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for this episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that Dr. Tannenbaum mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes and I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.